Welcome back to the O'Melveny Podcast. We are uh, talking today with transactions lawyers. We've been trying to schedule this for a while, and I'm really happy we have. I have three of my most favorite transactions lawyers at the firm uh, with me today uh, to talk about their careers and what brought them into uh, the transaction side of the practice. Uh, so let me start first with David Schultz, who's sitting here uh, with me in New York. David uh, is a graduate of NYU Law School and a partner in New York in our M&A practice. David, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Do you want to give us a, just a quick overview of your practice? Sure. Um, I, uh, I'm an M&A attorney. Uh, most of my practice involves representing private equity and hedge funds in either acquiring or taking minority positions in both public and private companies. What's interesting about that is that we tend to follow our private equity fund and hedge fund clients across all sorts of industries and areas of business that that they're interested in. So I've had an opportunity throughout the course of my career to work across all sorts of industries, including biotechnology, entertainment, sports, media, and the like. And, and so I find it to be uh, quite interesting to, to work with the clients in the areas that they're interested in, where they see investment opportunities or acquisition opportunities across a wide range of, of industries. All right, next is Amy Siegel. Amy is a partner in our Century City office in Los Angeles. She's also the hiring partner uh, in our Century City office. Uh, Amy graduated from Loyola Marymount uh, and uh, got her uh, BBA from Emory University uh, in Atlanta. Amy, welcome. Thanks, thanks. I am a partner in our entertainment, sports, and media group, um, which means that I handle different transactions that relate to the entertainment and sports industries. So anything, I see it as a content-based practice, so any type of transaction that involves content, whether it's creating content, financing content, distributing and exploiting content, so movies and TVs, uh, as well as uh, sporting events, um, any, any of those type of transactions, our practice will touch. And I also spend a fair amount of time on uh, live events and location-based entertainment, which is like theme parks and other types of entertainment that you, that you go uh, experience in a physical space. Thanks, Amy. And, and last but certainly not least is Eric Richards. Eric is a partner in our downtown LA office and the co-chair of our project finance and development group. Uh, Eric's a graduate of Yale undergrad and Harvard Law School. Uh, Eric, do you want to also give us just a, an overview of your, your practice? Uh, certainly, Alan, and glad to be with you all today. My group, the Project Development and Finance Group, does work with clients that sponsor or invest in large-scale projects, uh, usually projects that are used by the public generally in either the energy space or the infrastructure space. Uh, we work with clients who are looking to develop such projects or sometimes invest in them and provide capital to them and sometimes acquire or sell them as well. Excellent. Well, thanks all of you for, for joining today. David, uh, first of all, how do you like our high-tech um, recording studio here in New York. Well, it's good. I'm surrounded by about 500 uh, boxes of made of cardboard. Uh, and so it, it, this is a throwback to days before everything went electronic. Yeah, the, you do not want to make any sudden movements in our recording studio or else you might get a, a couple of three-ring binders that fall on your head. Um, 
you know, our offices in New York are are fantastic, and this is what we would call the underbelly of our office right here. But uh, but it works quite well as a recording studio. So um, so thanks. But uh, so David, did you go to law school knowing that you wanted to do transactions work? No, I was a I was a history major. Had no real business uh, background. Um, it was just a just simple uh, liberal arts major in college. Went to law school um, for a lot of the reasons that lots of folks go to law school, and, and without necessarily having a, a clear idea as to as to what I wanted to do going out. I think a lot of my decision to become a transactional attorney was influenced by the time and the timing in which I graduated. I was a summer associate during the what is now referred to as the first dot com boom, where the first the for really the first companies out in Silicon Valley were making a name for themselves the Yahoo's the AOL's some of the lesser known companies that are probably better known for their bad Super Bowl commercials now than anything else like pets.com but I got my start working with some of those companies early on I found it to be interesting and invigorating to see uh, and work with investors that were looking at um, at some of these folks that were really out there not only to start a business but in many ways to try to change the world um, and, and that sort of got me hooked on on the deal work. And um, as I developed, you know, you also find things that you you tend to be good at. And um, so I tended to be attracted to that because I think it was it was um, it, it it harmonized well with what I think some of my strengths are. And thinking back to your summer associate experience, to what extent did you focus on transactions work during your summer associate? Um, you know, uh, experience, or did you get a mix of work and then ultimately decide to end up in transactions? Yeah, I got I got a mix of work, and I think it was really important that I I got to experience the practical side, or as much as you can as a summer associate, the practical side of uh, lawyering as a as a litigator. You know, of course, I had the background from law school as to what it was like to do that at a higher level, studying the appellate litigation and the like. Um, and then I also was really fortunate to be staffed on a couple interesting transactions deals um, and you know look, I think also it doesn't hurt to have good mentors along the way that can teach you and get you excited about any particular area of law that you're looking to, to pursue. Uh, Amy, um, how about you? How did you decide to, to join the transactions side of the practice? So I was a JD MBA student in law school and I think um, I think people assume when you have a business background that you're going to lean towards transactions. I actually didn't. I thought that I wanted to be a litigator, and I thought the business background would have played well in litigation practice, which I think it does as well. I, I, I was truly undecided when uh, I came to Elmalvany and as a summer associate, and I tried uh, work in both areas. Um, I still had trouble deciding at the end of the summer, although it's it's important that you know you sort of start coming to a decision by the end of your summer, I think. And so I just, you know, I, I had to look back at the assignments that I worked on over the summer and and really decide what I felt most comfortable doing. And sometimes you've got to get in there and try it and, and see it's, it's some, in some sense a gut feeling. Although I do think having the business background and studying business at the same time uh, that I was in law school um, definitely had me interested in learning more about business and business transactions and deals that were happening in the news that I was reading about in, in business school. I think I was excited to be more part of, you know, in the, in the details when I was a summer associate. So ultimately I had to make a decision and no looking back. And, and 
thinking back to your summer experience, what were the kinds of assignments that you worked on as a summer associate that um, that gave you a window into what it would be like to be uh, an associate in transactions? And are, are those still the same kinds of assignments that summer associates you know, get today? Yeah. I don't remember the exact assignments because it's been too long, but I, I do remember working for um, one of our longstanding clients, which is Univision, Spanish Language Network, and I had I had a corporate assignment where I was asked to draft some, you know, pretty pretty basic um, agreements. They were ancillary agreements to some larger transaction, and I was able to sit in on uh, client meetings, internal meetings, and try to figure out how my piece that I was drafting, while it was only maybe a few pages, how that played into the larger transaction, played into the larger goal of the team, and really get a sense of what we were trying to accomplish. And I've always really enjoyed experiences like that. So in the summer, we try now to really find opportunities where you're not just doing a discrete assignment or drafting a two-page document, but you're also participating in all of the work that, in, that that's going on for that particular deal so that you can get a sense of how it fits into the bigger picture and it, it just makes it far more interesting. So so now in the summer, we, we try to put a summer associate on each of the larger deals that are going on during the summer. And sometimes you're just shadowing, but oftentimes um, it's a combination of shadowing and doing specific tasks that, that get your feet wet to try to, try to draft some provisions or maybe... It, you know, research a particular piece of what what you're negotiating in that in that deal. Yeah, just to piggyback off of what Amy said, I think that a lot of folks hit their inflection point in determining whether to pursue a litigation career or a transactions career, depending on how you view and how you how much you like the exercise of particular kinds of drafting exercises. If you like persuasive writing, the odds are you're probably going to lean more towards litigation. If you like to sit in on a call, as Amy was saying and listen to lots of different commercial ideas get floated and then have everybody in the room or figuratively on the phone call point to you and say, okay, could you write that? (laughs) And if if that's the kind of thing that excites you and you enjoy trying to reduce complex commercial terms into writing, allocate risk in a way that is is commercially sensible and meets the the commercial demands of your client, then I think you're going to likely lean towards litigation. I'm sorry, to transactional work. Eric. You've obviously had a, a very broad um, transactions uh, experience and uh, continue to have a very broad and interesting uh, transactions practice. Um, at some point, obviously, you also made uh, a decision to, to head towards transactions rather than litigating. What, if anything, do you know now about practicing in the transactions area that you wish you would have known when you were starting out and, and maybe would have made the decision to join transactions even easier for you as you were deciding? Well, maybe I'll start to answer that question by saying I didn't know very much at all at the outset. I, I had a sense of what uh, litigation attorneys did. And uh, while I enjoyed law school, and law school is more slanted, I think, towards the, uh, the adversarial types of assignments that litigation attorneys uh, would see when they practice, I felt that that probably wasn't what I wanted to do. I felt that uh, negotiating and kind of finding common ground and looking forward, and from what I could sense transaction lawyers did, I felt that was probably more 
akin to what uh, my interests were. So I joined O'Melveny's transactions department with that sense, but not with any specific sense of what type of work would interest me. I would say what, uh, now, now looking back on that and looking at the way my work has evolved over the years, I would say that I'm delighted by the breadth and scope of what is available in the transaction space. It really is, well, at the core, we do some fundamental things such as acquiring or selling businesses or raising capital or deploying capital. We do it across a very broad spectrum of activities and a very broad types of businesses. One of the senior lawyers told me when I first became involved in the transactions practice that if you're interested in a business, it's nice to have your own business, but if you're a business lawyer, you can have your nose in everyone else's business. And and that really has been one of the, the uh, rewarding things over the years is moving from business to business, from business problem to business problem. There's no shortage of new things and diverse things to, to wrap your mind around. And that's been one of the most enjoyable things about being in the space. Thinking back now, Eric, do you think there are classes in law school that are particularly helpful or that you wished you had taken um, before starting as a transactions associate? Uh, There's some that certainly can give you more foundation and background and knowledge about the theory of, of the field. Corporations law, which I think is a requirement of most law schools, uh, corporate entities, um, securities, secure transactions, even tax and accounting classes. But I I wouldn't encourage any student to load up in anything unless they're interested in that. And and certainly I wouldn't load up in it just for the sake of preparing myself for what I think might be my future practice. I think law school, almost any subject you take, really provides you with the foundational skills that you need to be a good lawyer, whether it's transactions or adversarial. And those are analytical skills. Uh, Those are problem-solving skills. So I think you learn that in almost any subject area. It doesn't hurt to to go into more depth in some subject areas that you think might be part of where your practice leads. But I wouldn't I wouldn't plan my entire law school curriculum around around trying to get classes in those areas. They're, they're nice things to and backgrounds to have when you come and do a transactions practice in particular. But I think um, as a business lawyer, you you probably you, you learn more through what I would call independent study, just reading uh, what's newsworthy in the business space uh, rather than either your classwork. And then, and of course, when you start your job, a lot of it, I think, is on-the-job learning as well. One of the things that's always struck me, and I think it's a bit of a, a misperception about the transactions practice, is that you know people will say, well, I, I'm not leaning towards transactions because I enjoy sort of the creativity of of litigation, of coming up with arguments, and of writing in, in sort of a creative way, um, an advocacy piece. And certainly, there is that component to litigation, and it's one of the things that attracted me to it. But I, I think that the the creativity of transactions practices are sort of underrated. Uh, and um, you mentioned some of this, uh, Eric, and I'm just curious of about your thoughts on uh, on whether you agree with me, any of you, that there is a, a good amount of creativity uh, in the transactions practice, and and if you do agree with me, is that something that that you know sort of surprised you as um, as your careers have uh, progressed? Well, I'll take a stab at that. I um, I was surprised to hear that people think that because I think transactions lawyers are highly creative. I think finding as I described, a common ground between your client and other clients that your client may be looking to do business with 
often requires creativity. It requires patience. It requires uh, listening. It requires understanding, you know, all sides, uh, concerns and issues, and weaving your way through that um, and finding the common ground. So I, I think it's creative almost 100% of the time and, and, and requires someone to, to, to kind of approach the task with an open mind. So I, I, I think that uh, I think that's one of the things that makes it rewarding. You get to the end of a, a problem and you look back and you realize that you had no idea that getting from point A to point B would, in, would involve such, such turns. But yeah, I'm, sure, makes... I'm sure it takes a lot of creativity to be an adversarial lawyer as well, but I, I, I don't think the transactions practice would be, would be second to that in any respect. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, Eric. The creative part of, of the process is the most enjoyable part of the process in many ways. Oftentimes, just to give an, a recent example, um, one of my clients was stuck on a, on a negotiation point with a counterparty on a deal, and the problem was is that they were only working, or they were only negotiating across one axis. You know, one party was saying X, and the other party was saying X plus 10. And th there was not going to be a solution in between X and X plus 10. And so what I tried to do was introduce different negotiating axes. You know, introduce a Y axis, introduce a Z axis. Um, if, you're not, if you can't solve it through just through dollars, then sometimes you can solve it through the passage of time or, or other different structuring components. So there's lots of different ways, and a lot of times, you know, even though your clients may be sophisticated, you know, Harvard or Penn MBAs, they just haven't had that kind of experience, especially if they're more junior. And so you can bring a lot of creativity and ideas to bear in trying to help close the gap on, uh, on, on negotiations. And so how do you gauge whether the matter um, has a good result? In litigation, you know, we, we win cases, we lose cases, although not here, um, and, uh, and we settle cases you know, um, which can be fa very favorable settlements to the clients. It, it's a little bit more tangible in terms of uh, whether the, the matter ended up with a good result uh, or not for the client. How do you gauge that in the transactions context? I, I could take a, a stab at that. I think there's, there's two, two ways to answer that, at least. Um, one way is whether it was a good result from a, lawyer, from a lawyering perspective. And it, usually I, I assess that as to whether, y you ask that question, and I think the answer to that question is, has the client made all of its decision-making on the basis of informed risk? Have you been able to assess and provide a, uh, all the risks that the client needs to make, to make their informed decision-making with respect to any particular deal? Obviously, from the client's perspective, usually, the best way to uh, assess whether a deal was successful is whether they made money or not, or whether the transaction accomplished some kind of strategic goal that they had that may not have been just uh, maximizing uh, the, their return. Yeah, I would add that in addition to a successful transaction, sometimes uh, not doing a transaction is in the client's best interest. And so I think uh, uh, when you look back and decide whether you were successful, it's whether you achieved the client's objectives. As David said, uh, did, did the client uh, make good decisions on the basis of good information that you helped to get in front of it and analyze for, for the client. So it could be a successful transaction, but it could also be something else. You mentioned you know working with MBAs and, and other business people. Amy, I'm curious in your practice, uh, are you usually working with clients that are lawyers or business people? You know, it's really both. It depends is the true answer. 
And that's what I like about it because you learn, you often learn a lot from your clients and you're learning about their business, you're learning about what their strategies are and our clients are, you know, range from startup new ventures to companies that have been around for hundreds of years. And so we we learn we learn from different types of clients and when there are lawyers they they may be looking for, you know, certain types of, of advice from us and when they're business people sometimes they're looking for more understanding of how the legal terms are gonna impact their business. And so I, I really enjoy the training part of it because we're teaching our clients and at the same time they're teaching us. And as you think back to sort of your time starting out and, and focusing on junior lawyers because, you know, before you can sort of get to that point where you know, you're advising business folks at a high level, um, there's a, you know, there's a training component uh, that, that comes in and you know, what would you say are some of the uh, some of the biggest challenges for junior associates uh, in this area? I think the biggest challenge is predictability of in time planning in that area. So the timeline of a transaction is not in your control. Even not even in the partner's control, and it's not in the court's control. A lot of the deadlines in litigation are mandated by the court or, or the schedule of the litigation. There, there is no official schedule for a transaction other than what our clients deem is the schedule, which is always, you know, yesterday um, or right away. And so I think the biggest challenge for junior associates is to figure out how to manage your schedule and how to stay calm in times that are busy and stay calm in times that aren't. Because you could spend an awful lot of time trying to get a big draft, a big document drafted, and sent over to the other side, and you don't know how long the other side is going to be reviewing it and sending it back to you. So you can't put a date on your schedule when the response is due, like in litigation. And so you have to be a little bit flexible, and you have to be willing to jump back into it when you're ready, and you have to be comfortable during the time that that draft is up with the other side, taking on something else and trying to kind of play volleyball with all these different pieces. And yeah, all of the polls can drop at the same time. That does happen. And fortunately, we have, you know, a system of support to help when that happens. But um, but it's a little bit of a feeling, an internal feeling of comfort with that level of unpredictability that if if you like to balance different things at, at, at one time and jump from one to the other, you know, I think you would really enjoy transactions law. Um, but I, I do think that that's the biggest difference, and I've, I've actually seen it personally. My husband is a litigator, and so I've watched in parallel, you know, training from an associate to partner, from, you know, in parallel with life of a litigator and a transactions attorney. And I can tell you, I, I think that that is the biggest difference is the, is the timeline of deals versus a litigation matter. I do say one of the things that made that is that it has made that issue easier to deal with over the last decade for sure has been the sophistication of our remote access capabilities um, and the the ability to go to the gym, go do your grocery shopping, go home, spend time with your with your friends, with your family, um, but be able to to reactivate if you need to um, on a rel- relatively quick uh, short notice. I would add too that you know, in addition to the lack of control over 
your schedule and over the, the progress of a deal. As a, as a junior lawyer, I think there's also sometimes frustration that you're only seeing part of the deal, that you only have responsibility, you think, for a part of things, and there are other things going on that you aren't as connected to. I, I learned a lesson pretty early in my career, though, that that usually isn't uh, an accurate portrayal of, of what your role is. I um, was assigned on a matter uh, involving a company that was selling off assets um, in an offshore drilling business. Uh, I was in charge of the due diligence and assigned to uh, spend a week, might have even been two weeks, in Louisiana and Mississippi understanding the company and doing the diligence and, and kicking the tires, so to speak, and um, felt frustrated at the time that I wasn't drafting the agreements and that there was a team back in Los Angeles that was preparing for these intense negotiations we were going to have with the other side. I got back from the due diligence trip, though, and I was uh, called into the negotiating room, uh, and the partner sat me next to him, and I thought, wow, I'm going to sit next to him and watch him negotiate, and uh, I won't have much of a role. But he turned to me probably 50% of the time on almost every major issue that came up in the negotiation to say, is this important to us? based on what you saw in the due diligence, do we care about this? And so I realized pretty early on that um, even though I only had what I thought was a small piece of something, it was a very important piece of something that related to the entire transaction. And so my, my counsel to younger lawyers is to be patient and to kind of appreciate what your role is, even though uh, all of us perform a limited role on, on, on transactions in some respect. It really takes the full team. Uh, to, to pull something off, but uh, but every every assignment really is important and feeds into uh, the larger uh, picture of what you're trying to accomplish for your client. And that really crosses over well, I think, generally, um, Eric, to you know being an associate generally, whether that's in litigation or transactions. Certainly, at O'Melveny, we want you know our associates to be thinking beyond you know particular roles, um, while obviously carrying out their roles, but being a productive member of the team um, and taking ownership of broad sort of responsibility as early as they can uh, because that's where you get uh, the most the most growth. And I think both in transactions and in litigation, um, that's something that uh, we certainly value here uh, at O'Melveny. What about, you mentioned kind of the, the schedule and, and having particular roles. What about the actual tasks themselves? You know, I think people have it a some understanding of, of what a litigation associate does, at least a, an assumption that you know it's going to involve research and um, writing for purposes of, of briefs, you know, um, discovery-related tasks, factual research, uh, and otherwise. But sometimes I think there's some uncertainty about what a junior associate does in the transactions contexts. Now, obviously that's going to vary, uh, I would imagine, from deal to deal and from group to group, but I wonder if you could give us a sense of, of what, junior, from your perspective, what um, what junior associates tend to be working on day to day. I'm happy to take that one. So, you know, in my practice, the junior associates are drafting the documents, and it's, you know, it's not like you're getting out of piece of white paper and just starting from scratch. We have, you know, experience from prior deals where where I'll often direct whoever I'm working with, you know, to a similar deal or similar deals and say, but it's different because of, you know, these factors. And we have to talk about what the nuances are, what the differences are, and why we need to modify things 
but we take, you know, we take precedence and experience from other deals that we've done and direct junior associates to start, you know, start drafting. And, um, and the drafting process is something that really, you know, just requires experience. I think it's one of those things like you can't take um, driver's ed without a car. You just, with, with drafting, you got you got to get in there and give it a try. And I don't, I don't know that it's something you can really be trained to do in law school. You know, like we said earlier, law school is going to give you the problem-solving skills and the analytical skills that are required in order to draft, but the actual drafting, you've got to get in there and do. And so that's what um, a lot of our junior lawyers spend their time doing. And then when, once the draft goes out and it comes back, there's a process of looking at the changes that were made to the draft and why did they make those changes and what substantive point are, is the other side trying to make um, or trying to change. And, and that, that's part of that problem solving and that analytical skill. And, and there's a process of trying to translate what's in the draft to ordinary language that, you know, that clients not only can understand, but that clients can discuss and have you know, a meaningful dialogue about. It's very difficult to have a conference call talking about a draft that's, you know, 50 to 100 pages. It's much easier to have, you know, a one-page document with a very short list. And so one of the challenges and one of the skills that our junior lawyers spend a lot of time training on is how to translate what's in the draft into bite-sized information that will be, you know, useful for an efficient discussion about the issues so we can negotiate them and resolve them. So the combination of drafting and issue spotting and, is, and, and making issues lists, I would say, are sort of the three big buckets, at least in my practice. I think, uh, in addition to what Amy said, and it, again, I think it differs by practice group and by transaction, but a lot of times the junior associate acts, uh, the most junior associate on the team acts as sort of the train conductor for the deal. Um, and by that, I mean they're responsible for creating the checklists. I mean, oftentimes we'll have deals that'll have a hundred different agreements that need to get executed. And the partners in the mid-level associates and the council are all focused on various aspects of those agreements, uh, but there needs to be somebody to make there to make sure that the trains are all running on time. When I was a, a first or second year associate, I was actually responsible for um, working inside the the C-suite, the C-suite of a Fortune 100 company that had just had its entire management team uh, removed from office, and we were my job was to to make sure that my law firm was delivering hundreds of work pro- of items of work product all uh, on time and with the right people. Um, and you might have thought that that was a non-substantive job, but it was incredibly substantive as a junior associate because I, I, I got to learn all about the business. I got to learn about how all of these things fit together, um, and I was responsible for managing a, a massive uh, undertaking. Um, so the, kind of, I would say the project management aspect is something that a junior associate can be really helpful in doing and can also lead to an understanding of, of how the various pieces add up to the whole. Do transactions lawyers ever do pro bono work? Absolutely. I've done work for uh, uh, clients who are new nonprofit entities that need bylaws to help them with governance matters. Uh, I also enjoy doing work in the pro bono space that might be non-transactional in nature. We we recently assisted a number of DACA students and, and, and young persons looking to renew their DACA documentation. 
Yeah, that's an area where you know I think our transactions lawyers and our litigators um, work together uh, quite well. Uh, it's not the only area. I think one of the nice things about uh, the O'Melveny culture and and um, and setup is that our transactions lawyers and litigators often do um, work together on matters hand in hand, and um, that's certainly been rewarding for me as a litigator. I've gotten involved in a number of. Um, transaction-related projects and, and matters. And when we're providing legal services to our clients on some of their most you know, pressing and complex matters, um, it, it oftentimes doesn't fit into a particular box. And, um, and we need the expertise of, of uh, both litigators and transactions lawyers to, um, to provide advice on, to our clients in the best possible way. So it's nice to be at a firm where we can connect well enough to, to be able to do that efficiently. Well, um, I guess, you know, as we sort of think about wrapping up here, because I know you all have busy schedules and we need to get back to, uh, to working on those complex matters with our clients. Uh, you know, as I, as I was thinking about this podcast uh, and the differences between litigation and transactions, I was really struck by the lack of pop culture references and sort of uh, standard bearers for transactions lawyers. Litigators, we have My Cousin Vinny, we have you know The Verdict, we have A Few Good Men. Um, there's a seemingly a different legal thriller novel out uh, every other week. What about on the transaction side? Are there any pop culture movies, books, anything that can give students an idea of what it's like? I'll, I'll take a shot at that, Alan. I don't know if it's a necessarily a lawyer, but if you enjoy watching the show Shark Tank, and I know that that's become a very popular show, and you wonder how once the once Mark Cuban hugs the, the, the person who <laughs> he made an investment in, how does that deal actually get done? How, how, right? Who, who puts all the documentation together for that? Um, if that's something that's interesting to you, um, th- that's a bit of a pop culture reference that that I find to be interesting. Right, that works. Um, and that related works. to a lot of what we do, particularly in the venture capital and uh, startup space. So I got one. I don't. I don't think it will help students understand how a transaction <laughs> works. But my reference would have to be Pretty Woman because Richard Gere, you know, was mm-hmm. in that boardroom negotiating, buying and selling companies all day, and, and for me and. I don't know, 1990 or whatever it was when that movie came out. That was pretty exciting. So <laughs> that's as close as I'm going to get. Um, that's a good one. On a transactional pop culture movie. There you go. I like that. Amy, I, I was going to rely on you to sort of fix this for it. You know, given Because fa- I'm the movie one. Yeah, because you're yeah. the movie lawyer. I mean, the top... Well, I mean, if I'm really going to get into the 80s and 90s, there's also Baby Boom, where she's negotiating oh, in the boardroom to sell her baby company yes. food. and. Now I'm aging myself, but no, um, applesauce. you know, inspiration for a for a young girl girl back in the day for me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good one, Diane Keaton. Yeah, yeah. The Big Short. Well, how can I how can I'm I follow that? I, I think that um, it's it's subtle, but I think uh, if people look to pop culture icons and leaders, um, business leaders, policymakers, not just people who are practicing business law. But the number of people who have law degrees and have used law degrees, probably initially in a transactional context, but have, have extended that to do other things, it's really enormous. I was at my law school reunion a couple years ago and learned that there are more people who lead businesses with a law degree from my law school alma mater than there are coming out of that school with a business degree, which is pretty 
remarkable. Both lawyers and, 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 and what we learn and what we and how we practice our craft really enable us. And, you know, and I think a lot of these people have transactional uh, backgrounds and connections, but enable us to do so many things, uh, to be leaders and problem solvers. And so uh, there's a lot more out there. It's just maybe subtle and not, not as apparent. Well, I think that's a great way to end. So um, thank you all very, very much. This has been, I think, a, a helpful and, and, and practical discussion. And thanks to, to all you out there um, that listened. All right. Until next time.